What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Megan Rapino, and I'm Sue Bird. We've decided to turn our crazy IG live show into a podcast for your listening pleasure. Enjoy the show. A Touch More. New episodes of A Touch More drop Tuesday only on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Hey, howdy, hey, Hardwood Knox listeners. I am Dan Favalli coming at you with Adam Frommel, the founder and editor-in-chief of NBA Math, as well as an editor for Bleach Report. The squeaking you hear in the background, as ever, is a puppy. I have Wade today, named after Deadpool for anyone who cares. We are carrying on with our decade ranking series. We're getting into the top 10 players for the Indiana Pacers since the 2010 2011 season. <laughs> um, as we carry on, before we carry on, excuse me, I'm losing my train of thought here. I'm going to leave this in. I thought about just canceling this, but I think I'm just going to leave it in. I just want to quickly remind everyone, please continue rating, reviewing, and subscribing to us on iTunes. If this is your first time listening because you're choppering in for a single team pod, we really do a great job here of blending stats and personality and anecdotal evidence. That is my totally biased opinion. There's also puppies playing with chimichanga squeaking toys in the background. Where else are you going to get that at another podcast? So please follow us on YouTube, Twitter, subscribe, rate, and review to us wherever you're consuming your podcast, be it iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, all those great places. Before we hop into though into these Indiana Pacers rankings, though, Adam, we got to ask, how the hell are you doing? Doing pretty well. I'm very pleased that that your dog named Wade after Deadpool has a, a chimichanga squeaky toy. That's very on brand. Thor has a squeaky hammer as well. So as he should. We're not and playing favorites. Just right Wade can't even pick that one up. I've heard. <laughs> He's not worthy. That I could say. Maybe one day. The squeaking has stopped though. So that's For now. that's great. Now. Um, maybe I'll regret not <laughs> recording over this in a second. And last but certainly not least, shout out to our sponsors. This week, which is betonline.ag, as always. They make this podcast possible. Please support them. You'll be hearing from them again in just a minute. After that unprofessional intro is now over, Adam, do you want to take us through this? I'll give a brief reminder for anyone who's just tuning in for the first time. We have forums out on NBA Math's Twitter account. Follow at NBA underscore math so you can participate in these rankings. We come up with composite rankings. Adam and I do our own. Those are input as well as the voters who you guys input, and that gives us our composite ranking. So without further ado, Adam, who checked in at number 10 for the Indiana Pacers? Well, I was really pleased with the Indiana Pacers voting in general because this was the first team of all the ones we've done so far that didn't seem to have any trolling ballots. It seemed like everyone took it seriously. We had fewer players in the honorable mentions, and we had 11 different players appear in the top 10s between the fan vote, me, and you. So... Thaddeus Young barely missed out in the composite rankings because the 10 spot went to Lance Stevenson. 
Um, definitely a polarizing player just because of that, that intense antagonistic play style. I think the enduring memory of his tenure in Indiana, really his two tenures in Indiana is probably him blowing in LeBron James's ear, but he was an irritant and he was good at it. He wasn't an efficient scorer, but he wreaked some havoc on defense. And I, I think overall, like it, it, it is hard to view his time in Indiana as an, anything other than a positive. I kind of consider him more spectacle than substance. That being said, did provide some playmaking, like you said, was a defensive irritant. I actually put him higher on my ballot because I didn't want to get killed for putting him too low. And the fact that he checked in at number 10 makes me wish that I put him at number 10 instead of number eight. But he you was were actually the highest on him. You had him at eight. The fans had him at nine, and I had him down at number 10. Wow. Well, I look, I'm going to be honest. I would put, I'd probably put him down at number nine or 10 now. Uh, so take this with a grain of salt. But I agree with everything you said. It's just to me, I've, I've always questioned whether what he did actually made this huge impact or was it just sort of this become this lore in real time lore where, you know, he was, I guess he was a defensive irritant, but how effective was he actually still, you look at his numbers, you look at the way he played, he did provide some extra ball handling for them. And like you said, at least gave them something of not just an irritant, but maybe a little bit of an identity on the perimeter defensively. Even if he was more spectacle than substance, you can use spectacle to your advantage sometimes. And I certainly do think that that helped him in, in certain matchups. So he does deserve to be on this list, just not a player that I've ever liked on or off the court. Yeah, I th- just solely the 2013-14 season, the last of his first stint with the Pacers, that got him onto the ballot for me, even if he hadn't played any other games. You know, 13.8 points, 7.2 rebounds, 4.6 assists per game while playing that pesky defense. Someone had to fill that role. Someone had to take those shots. And the fact that that he could do that semi-efficiently that season while serving as a playmaker, while becoming one of the better rebounding guards we'd seen during that time period in NBA history. Uh, all of those are, are, are testaments to the import that he had in Indiana, even if it was partially mythologized. The contract he gets from the Charlotte Hornets, is that going to be in episode 11 of The Last Dance, do you think, maybe? Or will that be in episode 12? I hope it's just in one of them. We need it, it did yeah, I mean, not not to get too far down on this tangent, but it still feels weird to me that the that that whole documentary ended without any mention of the wizards or the or the hornets. Or really anything anti Michael Jordan related, but Well yeah. That's yeah. the price you I mean, pay beat him to improve it. It was fun. I don't mean that we should The winners be, get to write history. Right. And uh, this isn't a shitting on the last stats podcast. So can you take us to we have no number nine because we have a tie at number we eight. Do. So we'll go over Darren Collison first. Um, he was 10th on the fan ballot. He was 8th for me, and he was 7th for you. Spoiler alert, Dan will not be the highest on every single member of the Indiana Pacers, but that is two in a row. I, I think I valued his thereness in two different stints, played for two different versions of a pretty good Indiana Pacers team. Uh, I mean, the first year in his first stint, they were bad, but then really good the second year. And he always just, you know, we talk about, he, he's sort of like the Patrick Beverly of offense, where he can do so many different things while fitting next to everybody like he Mm. can shoot threes off the catch there was a little bit of dribble penetration to his game in his prime he could hit some some stuff off off the dribble and so to have that at point guard yeah you know never going to be the best playmaker never going to be a really good defender but the way that Patrick Beverly fits a team on defense I feel like he does the same but on offense and that's why I really valued him for for Indiana obviously the off-court stuff if you 
Um, the domestic violence charges, if you wanted to drag him down for that, I'm not going to harp. I mean, I'm not going to hold that against anybody, but purely looking at the basketball, I think he was pretty valuable to two different quality versions of the Pacers over this decade. I really like that Beverly comparison. It's not something I've I've thought about before just now, but it, it makes like you sense. Were vomit when I said it. No, it just I, I was I was looking at some numbers and just kind of snapped to attention there because I wasn't expecting that, but it makes sense. You know, I I have long viewed him as as one of those ideal offensive role players. You know, a, a super efficient jump shooter. He led the NBA with 46.8% three-point shooting during the 2017-18 season with the Pacers. But beyond that, it seems like he's one of those guys who doesn't make bad plays on the court, we should say, as as you did. Um, I don't mean to laugh at that. That was just a little well-timed jab at him there. Deserved one. Yeah, I needed needed to clarify there. But yeah, I mean, he doesn't make mistakes with the ball. He doesn't take bad shots. Just we don't see – point guards come around who are who are this accurate from long range and can play make without turning the ball over that's a rare combination and it's valuable and it kind of makes me regret not having him even higher especially with that thereness factor coming into the equation because he is sixth in minutes played over the last decade he look and you know he gets bonus points because basketball reference doesn't separate stints when you're looking at combined stats for teams and so it just says that from 2011 to 2019 he's He's with the Pacers. Right. <laughs> Look, his, his thereness could have technically gone up a little bit too had he not retired over the summer. Maybe they still pivot into Malcolm Brogdon since they had so many free agents. But yeah, the, the thereness def- definitely helps him there as well. Well, he's tied with a player who does not benefit from thereness. He's 10th in minutes played for the decade, and that's Danny Granger. He was a tough one to rank, as is so often the case with these guys who who peaked before the decade in question. So, you know, his his Indiana tenure dated back to 2005, but we're only looking at 2010-11 through the end of his time in Indiana, which came midway through 2013-14. So the best season was that first one of the decade where it was already clear that he was declining from the all-star caliber do-everything scorer. Um, and that that made him tough to rank because – it's not really that peak version that we're remembering. So the fans still had him up at fourth. I, I wonder if there was a little bit of confusion about which seasons that we were considering there, because I don't think that there's much of an objective case to have him that high. Um, I actually did not have him in my top 10. I considered him, but there are so many players that played for so much time in Indiana over this decade or had similar peak seasons. Um, and you did have him in a tie for your 10th spot with Thaddeus Young. Yeah, shout out to Thaddeus Young for all he did defensively for the Pacers. I know that he was this offensive liability come playoff time, but he really, we give credit to Miles Turner and he deserves it, but he really shaped that defensive identity just just everywhere. One of the best help defenders in the NBA. So for Danny Granger, it does seem, I don't know if he was declining so much as, look, the left knee injury stuff that torpedoed his career, obviously. But before that, it just felt like the Pacers were kind of shifting to more of a committee approach in the two really good seasons he had. You know, you have Darren Collis in there. Uh, Roy Hibbert's taking on more of a role. You're, it, it wasn't clear that they were grooming Paul George for stardom, but he went from playing 20 minutes a game to, to almost 30. You had David West there. You had George Hill there. And so he just put together still two really good seasons. But I, it wouldn't shock me if people just not even got the seasons mixed, mixed up. But you just remember that. Danny Green averaged almost 26 points per game in 2008-2009 while hitting 40% of his threes, and you're just giving him credit for that. And then the next season, 2009-2010, which 
2010 kind of overlaps in this decade anyway. You're going to remember Danny Green averaged 24-plus points a game uh, while shooting pretty well from three again. And Danny Granger was really good. If I said Green at all, I apologize for the for the misstep. That just rolls off the tongue. But I think he had two good enough seasons in this decade, looking at 2010, 2011, and then the lockout campaign thereafter um, to, to make my top 10. But I totally understand why you left him off. But this is just a shout-out to peak Danny Granger, who was an exceptional offensive basketball player. Could you imagine had he never gotten injured if Paul George, I, I really don't think Danny Granger's injury was part of Paul George's rise, at least not to the to the point where had both of them stayed and Danny Granger remained healthy, I don't think it would have prevented Paul George from becoming the player that he did. And I would have loved to have seen the two of them play together at close to their peaks. I think it would have hindered him a little bit just because Granger was such a ball dominant force during his prime that George might not have been allowed the 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 bandwidth to experiment with his offensive game like he did and really blossom. Um, maybe filling more of a, a niche offensive role than he does now, but I, I don't think it would have prevented him from becoming a star. Fair enough. What up, Hardwood Knox listeners? There's no shortage of action going on in our exclusive partner, Bet Online. NASCAR is back, and Bet Online has hundreds of other games, events, and sports to get in on. You can still bet on simulated NFL, NBA, and UFC events 24-7 as well. Or you can participate in a $10,000 Madden Bracket Challenge, a March Madness-style NFL simulation tournament you can enter for free. And live right now on BetOnline's YouTube channel, you'll find an exclusive interview with the ex-Chicago Bulls, Ron Harper, Horace Grant, Bill Cartwright, and Craig Hodges to discuss the Michael Jordan documentary on what they're calling the final dance. Visit BetOnline.ag and use promo code BLUEWIRE to receive your welcome bonus and check out all the action. BetOnline, your online wagering solution. We have another tie now that we're moving on, though. So can yeah, you tell us I, in sixth? I think we have to approach these together because we're, like, legally obligated to talk about these two players in conjunction with each other at all times. And it, the, the first of them is Miles Turner, um, who was eighth for the fans, seventh for me, sixth for you. Yet again, you're the highest on, on one of the Pacers. Um, and, and, of course, he's tied with DeMontis Sabonis, uh, who was sixth for both the fans and me and down at ninth for you. Defense versus offense, the more longevity versus the remarkable peak that Sabonis has achieved this year. It's a, a clash in, in styles and, te- and and differing tenures um, from two players who always seem linked together because Indiana can't decide which it wants to commit to. As of now, it's committed to both. This placement, it's got if if Indy Cornrose's Caitlin Cooper is listening, one of my favorite writers and people to talk about, uh, people to talk hoops with on the podcast. They, they're inextricably linked, and I always have to ask her on the four or five times she's come on about whether Indy's going to choose or who she would pick. And so this is probably going to drive her absolutely wild or crazy. This is that, one of my favorite placements of anything so far. That they're just tied in this because they're, <laughs> right. they're so inextricably linked that they just can't get any separation. Look, for this is, this is probably a hot take at this point because I'll fully admit that Sabonis is the better player than Turner right now or at least has had the better season. I really think that he's become overrated because I don't know that he's someone that you can run an offense through for stretches and that combination of force and finesse is just really high quality. But I feel like he kind of pigeonholes you to a certain type of roster where if they were to change up the personnel around him or maybe things could get even a little bit iffier with the current personnel when you have Brogdon and a fully healthy Victor Oladipo and a TJ Warren. I don't know how well he fits if you're going to ask him to play off the ball more, if you're not going to give him as many looks 
um, against second units that he could lead on his own. And if you do end up choosing him over Miles Turner, and perhaps they will just because I think Turner holds more, holds more trade value because his skill set is more scalable. Another team is going to view it as more translatable than Sabonis is, even though Sabonis right now, I'll admit, is the better player. And so that's why I end up higher on Turner probably. I just still have questions about what Sabonis can do to this team. Is he more of that guy who's going to preserve your floor or raise your floor and then your ceiling is just always going to be a little bit lower than it could be? Can he shoot more threes or shoot threes at all if if you want to call it that? What does it look like if he is a full-time center without Turner there defensively? And he might be a little bit underrated defensively at this point because I think people view him as this huge liability. And so what he can do for them um, on the glass, and it feels like he really has gotten a little bit better at moving laterally over the past two seasons or seasons and a half, whatever you want to call it. And Pacers fans going to be smarter than I am on the Pacers, so call me out for whatever shit takes you're hearing here. That's just where I land and why I ended up having him at ninth and where I'm sure he probably ended up in the top four or five on some other people's ballots. I don't really have much to add to the analysis. I just have a trivia question and a production suggestion. So which do you want first? Give me the production suggestion. I think, I think the hardwood Knox podcast needs a hot take sound. I think as soon as you, you, uh, you just embark on one of those that we just need some, some sort of sound that you can add in. Just an indicator that what what you're about to hear is is going to get spicy. So if you have a suggestion for one for this podcast, throw it at me now, Adam, or tell me afterwards. It could it's just not- be like a sizzling sound, like just something cooking on the grill. Listeners, get at us at at Adam Me or the Hardwood Knox account at Hardwood Knox. I'm at Damp Valley F A V A L E at Frommel zero nine. Tell us what you want the hot take sound to be. I may just pick one for this podcast and insert it with this a bonus take. I'm not even sure if it's that spicy though. Do you think it is? And I'm not no, trying to be like a dick not, here. It's not that spicy. I, I thought it was going to be spicier when you when you started to talk, but you justified it pretty well. Yeah, I'm just I yeah, that's where I'm at. It's just, the, overratedness is tough because it depends on where you're rating them. Overratedness. And, that's a that that's a new gonna be a new metric right there with thereness. But speaking of spiciness, the trivia question. Um I'm not the, ready. the 2016 NBA draft class contains a lot of notable names. Pascal Siakam is where that spicy segue comes from. Ben Simmons, Malcolm Brogdon, Jamal Murray, Jalen Brown, Buddy Heald, Brandon Ingram, Karis LeVert, Malik Beasley we can throw in, and DeMontis Sabonis. Where does Sabonis rank among that class in win shares thus far in their careers? I'm going to say he ranks fourth. He's actually up at third. Damn it. He's third. So fifth is Jamal Murray at 16.1. Brogdon is 16.8. Sabonis is 20.6. Siakam is 20.7. And Simmons is 24.4. Wow. Where does Jalen Brown end up on that? Jalen Brown is down in seventh at 13.5. Sandwiched between Jakob Pertl and Buddy Heald. What the hell is Jakob Pertl doing on there? I guess he played for some good I mean, Raptors he's always team. been efficient. He's been on good teams. And, you know, bigs are typically favored in this metric. That's true. Uh, I wouldn't say he's always been on good teams because the Spurs are awful. Moving on though, did you have did you have any thoughts on Miles Turner being here? If you had maybe this is a question for you. If you had to pick one, are you a Turner or a Sabonis guy? I'm a, I'm still on in a vacuum. I'm in favor of Sabonis because I think that he's just a better all around player. I think there's more room for growth. I think that that his ability to facilitate to power through players to score with finesse 
a developing jumper that isn't quite there yet. I think that he's the more malleable player at this stage of his career who is a better plug-and-play option across the board. But I might still pick Turner just knowing who the Pacers have on their roster. If we assume that Oladipo gets back to full strength, if we assume that Brogdon is there long-term and we still have TJ Warren, where are the touches coming from? I would rather have that dominant rim protector, shot blocker, defensive asset who hasn't really complained about having fewer offensive touches. I think what hurts Sabonis' case, too, is his three-point percentage dipped this year when his volume went up. I just wonder what he'd be like in a situation if you told him to bomb threes at a permanent clip of Jaron Jackson Jr. or something. I think he could end up being more valuable offensively. And because you have Sabonis there, I don't think he's been given enough opportunity now to kind of see what he can do from scratch, maybe in the post, as they've gotten away from that. I'm not entirely ruling out that they can work together. I would probably lean towards no, just looking at how the Pacers are built now. But they've they've proven that they can work defensively together just fine. It's the offense that becomes a little bit wonky. Yeah. Speaking have- of defensive big men, though. Oh, boy. Here, we, here it goes. At number five, we have Roy Hibbert, who was fifth for the fans. He was fourth for me, and he was fourth, and he was fifth for you. So we were all pretty similar on him. Um, I, I, the first thing I always think of with Hibbert is just that he is one of those true testaments to how quickly the NBA changed. Like it's amazing how fast we went from these defensively dominant Pacers teams that were challenging LeBron James's squads with Hibbert at the center of that. You know, it, just exemplifying the idea of verticality and challenging shots around the rim. But the immobility, the lack of offensive contributions meant that he got phased out really quickly. He went from he went from making the all-defensive first team in 2013-14 to basically being out of the league four years later. After he had washed out with the Lakers, Charlotte, and Denver. It's not even that. He was on the all-defensive team in 2013-2014 and then became a liability against the Hawks defensively in that postseason. That's just a wild progression and de- uh, devolution of value it's like i i don't even know what to make of it and that's why it was hard to place him because i think you're you're still kind of pulled towards recency and look there's for most of this decade he has not been considered an asset uh he was looking at just his time on the lakers from 2015 to 2016 plays another season split, splits between charlotte six games in denver and then he's out of the nba so he's been a net negative asset to not in the nba more this decade than he's been actually on the court, essentially. And that makes him difficult to place. But I don't think that we can, as you put it, ignore how valuable he was to the Pacers when they were challenging those uh, LeBron-led Miami Heat teams. Uh, you know, that that iconic block he had on Carmelo Anthony in the 2013 playoffs, he was a phenomenal rim protector. It's just the NBA really pushed, like, at, I, I don't even know what the word, they styled him out of the league quickly. Absolutely. And I, I think this is one of those cases where looking at the progression of his his on-off swings is is really interesting because in 2011-12, plus 4.8 with him on the court compared to when he was off the court, um, plus 10.4 swing in 2012-13, plus 6.8 the next season. But then his final year in Indiana, minus 3.2, with the Lakers, minus 15.1. And then with the Hornets, minus 0.5 for 42 games, and then a massive minus 49.1 with the Nuggets over a whopping 11 minutes. So let's throw that small sample out of the window. But still, like, how quickly did the switch flip where he was clearly an asset and then the NBA had changed to the point that no matter how much Indiana wanted to build that pack the paint, 
funnel things towards Hibbert defense. It just didn't work anymore. And what actually probably hurt him more is his offense because he was just never the most efficient offensive player for a big, not someone that you should have wanted to post up ever. And then not really a guy that you looked at as probably just didn't really have the the foot speed or the finishing touch to, to be this really valued rim runner uh, off of screens. And without then a jump shot or anything resembling one from beyond the arc, it makes it really difficult to keep him on the floor. It wasn't just that he was mismatched defensively. It's that he's mismatched defensively and then doesn't really give you any value on the offensive end. And so, look, I know he took long twos through throughout his career at a modest frequency, I guess, for his position, if you want to call it. I don't know really how how efficient he was in those situations during his prime. You know, he has some of these outlier seasons where, oh, in 2014-2015, he shot 44% on long twos, which which is a good number. But you look at some of his other pacer seasons, 32.5%, 33.3%, then there's 44.3%, 36.8%. It's sort of all over the place. And this inability to have a continuous offensive value or consistent utility, that probably pushed him out of the league just as much, if not more so, than him being unable to hang with uh, the NBA's new wave of defense. Totally agree with all of that. I mean, I, I think it's I think it's important that we we finish this Hibbert section just by saying that none of this is truly a knock against what he provided to the Pacers during his peak years. It's just it's an example of how much the NBA shifted and how quickly it shifted, rather than an indictment of his skills, because he he came up playing at Georgetown and and his early years in the NBA with the idea of filling this role, which he mastered. He was really good in that role, but then that role quickly became devalued. And that's not that's not an indication that he wasn't a valuable player or he wasn't a good basketball player or he wasn't deserving of a top five spot in these rankings. Just that things changed. No, I'm totally with you there. And look, like I said, the, one of my favorite live action photos is – Roy Hibbert's blocker on Carmelo Anthony. That's just one of the most iconic photos, definitely of the decade, but for me, uh, in memory. So just and and that's really sort of this snapshot of how important he was to that to that Pacers team. Yep. Who do we have at number four? At number four, we have the guy who is third in minutes played for the Pacers over this decade, and that is George Hill. Uh, George Hill was down at seven for the fans. He was up at three for me, and he was number two for you. So I'll let you take this one away as the clear high man on on George Hill. Look, George Hill is just like this game manager on steroids, can just do everything. And he was so good defensively with the Pacers, too. I feel like that gets overlooked. And for someone who plays the point guard position to to be there uh, and be that effective of a presence on defense, you have to really love it. And then you look at all the different types of talent he played alongside during his uh, few years in Indiana and someone who, you know, I'm not going to really like say, I don't want to use that Patrick Beverly of universal fit on offense again with him, but he is kind of that guy. And like, yeah, you know, he can dribble a little bit and he can get into the lane, but his shooting was always just top shelf and could play off of anybody fit in really any type of offense. And I think, with the exception of 2018, 2019, uh, his shooting has been so good. You've really seen it. Just look at how, you know, when he could stay healthy, just moving from the Pacers to, to the Utah jazz, look at how valuable he was there. Look at what he's done for the bucks this season. And that's just sort of this 
compacted view of what he did for the Pacers on offense is just never had to worry about certain touches or how to use him functionally. He could just fill those gaps, fit in around everyone else, Was it whether it was David West, whether it was Paul George, whoever. And to have that type of floor spacing from him uh, where he could hit off the catch when the Pacers did, that was a big part of their success in those, I call it success, even though they weren't necessarily successful against LeBron-led Heat. But that's why, that's a big part of the reason why they were there every year. And so I had no qualms about putting him at number two uh, for the Pacers. And look, he was top three in minutes. And if you look at just some of, you know, he was he was second in value over replacement player as well. And so I don't think it's too much of a reach to put him second, but you did say that he cut, I was one, the highest on him, which is apparently a prevailing theme in this podcast. And two, it does seem like he had the highest variance in his finishes. He did. Of every player, he did. I, I think the one, one, I guess the two things that you really left out there are his shoulders, because that's one of the things I associate most with, with George Hill is just the massive Dwight Howard of point guard's shoulders. And <laughs> I mean, that's fair, right? Like, isn't that one of the first I've things? I've never actually thought about that, but now that you're saying it, I can't unthink about it. So right. It's just, his jerseys do not look like they fit. Um, <laughs> but I, I've always just, I've thought of George Hill as just a winner. You know, some guys just seem to be winners. They always play for good teams. They, they're fine filling whatever role they need to fill. They're able to contribute in so many various ways that just aid the winning cause. Was he ever really a star? I don't think so. But, but you know, as, as you said, the, the, the malleability on offense, the optionality on defense, just the ability to, to fill so many different roles and to fill them all at such a high level. Combined with the thereness, I, I strongly considered him for my second spot as well. I, I really struggled with with two through five, honestly, um, with with the Pacers. Um, they were all kind of clumped together for me. Right, and so 2014-2015, George Hill was on one, and so that's the year the Pacers weren't very good because Paul George. Uh, that's the year that he only played in six regular season games. But like, that's not something he's not even star dependent. Like, he was someone who could put up semi efficient numbers. Mm-hmm. On his own. And that was just a, a good year. He's the Pacers' leading scorer that season by a fairly substantial margin. CJ Miles was number two at 13.5 points per game. So you look at what George George Hill can do, being able to manage an offense on his own, but then also being the quintessential star, superstar accessory. I, I really value that in players. And so, no, he was never a star, but he is a superstar role player, as high end as they get when he was in his prime. And look, even now, he's just been so useful to, to the Milwaukee Bucks, the NBA's leader in, in three point shooting as. As we record this, that season is clearly not up for debate in this, but I think it just shows, you know, I use that word scalability, but it shows how universally translatable he was, not just from team to team, but from lineup to lineup, from team makeup to team makeup, to style to style. System proof, if you could call him that. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, w- I was trying to see if there was any objective evidence for my my winner claim, and you know, the the basketball reference opponents finders are pretty interesting for players. I, if if any listeners have not checked those out, you should because they show you the head to head record that uh, a player has against everyone he's ever faced. Um, so Hill ha- does have a losing record against quite a few people that he's faced a lot, um, largely from more of the the dynastic or championship caliber teams that he's had to play. But one really interesting thing, and this is just totally tangential and probably not important at all, but he is undefeated against one, two, three, four, five, six, six different players that he's faced at least 10 times. And they're Corey Maggette, Quincy AC, Zach Levine, Chris Kamen, Jordan Clarkson. And he's somehow 12 and O against Anthony Davis's teams, which I just, I thought was interesting and weird. Do you think was his standing? And it's, it's a sign that the bucks are going to beat the Lakers this year. If they play, that's an excellent point. 
and a very interesting That's why they signed him. Way to come up with that one on the fly. But also, do you think he was held back at all in the rankings because, by some people at least, because of the Kawhi Leonard trade? No, I don't think so. You don't th- that's not, it doesn't seem like that's a very painful memory for Pacers fans. No, I, th- I think he ingratiated himself to that fan base throughout his time there to the point that that's not really relevant anymore. That's, I'm just, I'm curious, because I don't even, when you think about, you know, we even talk about how the Hawks should regret getting Trey Young in a pick for, you know, like, Luka Doncic, and... You need to play the hot take sound again there. <laughs> but... But I'm just saying, like, we don't, we never think about that with George Hill and Kawhi Leonard. And I don't know if that's because people still think, I, I they can't. Leonard was not a system player in San Antonio. So, but I, I think that's a testament to just how good Paul George became. No, not Paul George. Maybe it is a little bit, but how good George Hill became. They both have George in their names. It's an understandable slip there. I probably called Danny Granger Danny Green at one point, calling George Hill Paul George. You did once. I was going to let it go, but you called yourself out. So it worked out. I will always call myself out. Who are we at with number three? At number three, we have the one and only Victor Oladipo. Um, the fans had him up at number two, which I get. I had him at number five. You had him at number four. I did not give him any credit for his singing, even if he might deserve it. But he was just – he was hard to rank because the one year that he just exploded with Indiana, 2017-18, um, that was probably the best season they've had from any player this decade maybe. Did, was it better than anything that Paul George did? It's, it's at least in the conversation, but then you know, only 36 games in 2018-19, only 13 games at a, at a far lower level this this current season. Um, it, it was tough because he just he doesn't register on on the thereness front. Only 17th in minutes played for the decade, so it's it's the peak versus the longevity argue argument all all boiled down into one player here. Yeah, look, if you're just going strictly by talent, he's number two. But Without question, a sample size has to matter, and I, I'm wondering if people are misremembering that he wasn't. It wasn't that he wasn't good before he was injured last year, but he wasn't super efficient. Like he wasn't at that 2017, 2018 level, and maybe that was because he was trying to play through that right quad injury in the first first place. But when you're looking at sheer contributions, I do think number two is a. Li- I even think number three is a little bit lofty. I put him at number four myself just because of that peak, and you were even a little bit lower. You had him at number five. You said so. Look, I get it, just looking at his talent in a, in a bubble, but the availability just really hasn't been there. And and again, 2018-2019, there was that clear drop-off from 2017-2018. So it's not like he's had this super sustained peak. And I do think that he's way better than uh, he was with the Thunder or the Orlando Magic. I don't think that that's up for debate. I think we've shown that he can be a legitimate star in this league, but we need to see, can he, one, stay healthy, is or is this, you know, this right quad injury, how's he going to do coming back from it? He was perking up offensively a little bit and looked really good on defense during the time he played in Indy this year. Just still so many questions, though, about the sustainability of his apex, not whether he's good or not, of of his apex. And so I, number two, number three, like that seems pretty high. I even thought I was a little too high on him putting him at number four. So David West is second in the composite rankings. He was I, I did have him second. You and the fans both had him third. And I, I'm just I'm revealing that now just because I do think it's interesting to to debate who should have been second because it just depends on what you vary so much uh, what you value most um, you know so second second through fifth was was West Oladipo Hill and Hibbert Oladipo was the only like true star of those four players during their times in Indiana if you want to say David West was a star in New Orleans I think that's valid um, but. 
he didn't play as much. He's played at a lower level for part of his tenure. So it, it is interesting. Like it, it's it's harder to acquire a player of Oladipo's caliber in the NBA. So the fact that Indiana had access to a player like that, a guy who could totally take over on offense, who demonstrated the ability to not just maintain his performance, but elevate his performance in some of the biggest moments and still contribute with effective, with physical, with intense defense at all times. I I do understand placing him in those second and third spots, even if there isn't necessarily an objective argument for it, if only because Indiana's options for that second spot are limited. You know, like George Hill is a fine choice. I considered putting him there. I had David West there, but both of those are guys who filled smaller, less important roles. And there are, there are only three players in the last decade for Indiana who have been able to shoulder that star burden. And it's it's Granger, it's Paul George, and and it's it's Victor Oladipo. So even if I had him at fifth, I, I do understand elevating him. My one counter argument to all that is he never dyed his hair blonde like like George Hill did. That's true. So I, I just that's my and only, his shoulders are smaller. That's true. Look, Paul George, Paul George, George Hill has the shoulders, the Dwight Howard shoulders, and he had blonde hair that that garnered that reaction from Popovich. Do you remember that game? where Greg Popovich was like stroking his own hair to make fun of George Hill's uh, bleached hair. I, one of my favorite moments in recent memory, I, I definitely, maybe I'm being too bullish then on saying that old Depot shouldn't be that high, but the thereness, it's just so low to me and that there are still so many question marks ascribed to what he's done in Indiana. Clearly important to what they're doing offensively, particularly if you want Sabonis and Turner to work together on that end of the floor. I just have a hard time saying that he he deserves to be that high ahead of David West and George Hill. And I think that's valid. Speaking of David West, though, you said who was it? Number two, number three on mine. Did he ever miss a long two-pointer? Probably not. He shot about 50% on long twos, 90th percentile over that time while in Indiana, those three seasons. And was that, this is a trivia question for you, is David West the biggest free agent signing in Indiana Pacers history? I mean, probably so. I'm trying to think if I'm missing anyone. Unless you're, I don't think you are. Unless all, like, their, all their stars have been homegrown or acquired via trade. Unless you're like super high on Boyan Bogdanovich or something. I don't. I don't know. No. Who would surpass yeah, him. I. I don't. I don't think anyone would. I also think that David West is probably. Hmm, maybe maybe he or Lance Stevenson would be the guy I would never want to play from this last decade of Indiana basketball. Because, you know, West was just this physical force on both ends. You know, he was a great defender who prided himself on taking those bruising matchups, but he doled out some punishment on offense too. I think the play I associate most with him is just kind of backing down a defender and just throwing his shoulder into him. I feel like if you played David West during his peak years with New Orleans or Indiana, you were going to emerge with a bruised sternum for sure. I don't disagree with you. He just threw his weight around everywhere and just seemed like a super strong guy. I always viewed him as sort of this culture setter, but given what happened to the, uh, I think it was that was that the 2013-2014 Indiana Pacers, maybe I gave him too much credit to that, but also seems like someone who 
kind of that Thaddeus Young guy who could be really valuable but behind the scenes in that capacity, but perhaps I'm overvaluing him in, in that respect. But I think, like you said, it was kind of hard to sort through two through five for the mm-hmm. Pacers, but I think top three is definitely, that's certainly where he belongs. So there was no uncertainty at number one, though. Andrew Bynum? I mean, it was Andrew Bynum. Okay. Um, he was he and he and CJ Miles were really close for that one spot. No, I mean it was it was Paul George. It, we all had him at number one. He was in the number one spot on all but one fan ballot, where he was number two to, to Oladipo. Which, if you're going for that peak value, I, I guess there's some argument there because I do think Oladipo's season was the best in in the last decade of Indiana basketball. But George was the pretty obvious number one. I mean, just both for what he did before that devastating injury with with Team USA and for for the, the ability to come back and, and play at an even higher level. Uh, his best season didn't come in Indiana. It came in Oklahoma City, which right. is kind of going to be weird to think about a decade from now, um, especially since he was only there for two years. But you know, he had three phenomenal years with the Pacers. And he was just – I think what really helps him – I think you're right that Victor Lodipo's best season in Indiana might is probably better than Paul George's best season in Indiana. His efficiency was like kind of always borderline. Just it was never quite elite. But he has some really special playoff moments. Paul George seems like a, a different playoff P. Like like that's a, he's that's an actual person. It's who is his big dunk over? It was like seven years ago yesterday, the day before we recorded Chris this. Chris Anderson, Birdman. Chris Anderson, yeah, that's right. Back in when they played the Heat. And so he has some really special playoff moments, which I think, which I think really helps his case. But he's he has to be the universal number one. I will since you don't really have to debate how good he was in Indiana. I love that they traded him to not the Lakers. That's why one. I think that's why if you're a team, you'd prefer your star to tell you that they want out rather than let it mm-hmm. ride to free agency. I understand there's certain players like a Kevin Durant or Giannis Antetokounmpo where they're probably not going to give you that answer, and you don't just trade those guys even if they declined to sign the Supermax extension. That wasn't a thing for Kevin Durant, obviously. But they got real value for him. So Bonus and Oladipo are both all-stars now. And like, we brutalized that trade at the time, right. though. I wrote about it. Uh, Me too. So and, and killed it. And But I love that it seems like the Pacers were just like, nah, we're not sending him to the Lakers. Maybe that had something to do with they didn't want to rebuild. And that's fine, too. Indiana's always kind sure. of been in this you know team that's franchise that seems to value the consistent proximity to the playoffs but i absolutely love that there seemed to be a level of pettiness there where it's like oh he wants to go to the lakers we're not sending him there and then they send him to oklahoma city and they end up getting good value and it proves that yeah there will always be teams that are willing to take a risk on a guy who says he has one foot out the door and i think look Kawhi Leonard leaving toronto hurts this theory but paul george re-signing in okc granted he asked out afterwards but re-signing that contract in okc to where then they were able to flip him for just as good if not better value than they gave up for him that's why I, I I think if you're a team and, and your star is going to leave, you want to know in advance you can try and get um, that a trade done. And you don't necessarily need it to go to Anthony Davis ended up with the Lakers. And yes, their offer was probably better than anything anyone else was offering. But I love the, just the Paul George saga in Indy. I love the way it ended because he didn't go to the team that he wanted to be on. And then he ended up staying with that, with that team in Oklahoma city and kudos to the Pacers for kind of going against the grain there. It could have, it really could have not worked out. It could have trapped them in unpleasant mediocrity because they still might be trapped in mediocrity for, for all we know, Uh, but for what Oladipo and Sabonis turned into since they arrived, just end up being a really great decision by Kevin Pritchard and company. Well, Hardwood Knox listeners, you heard it here first. Dan Favalli is uh, already criticizing Giannis for not asking 
for a trade and, and telling the Bucks that he's going to move on. Well, here's my thing is that Giannis is not leaving Milwaukee, but that's a yeah, I don't, I don't think he's going to either. Do you have some honorable mentions to dive Yeah, on? we had very few because shout out to, uh, to Pacers fans for taking it seriously across the board and, and doing a good job with the ballots from, from our perspective, at least. Uh, 11th, we had Boyan Bogdanovich. He was a fairly close 11th, as were Thaddeus Young at 12 and Malcolm Brogdon at 13. And then the uh, the distant honorable mentions were Monte Ellis at 14, which surprised me. Uh, 15 was TJ Warren. 16 was CJ Miles. And tied with him was Jeff Teague, which should not have should not have happened. But, you know, we're, we're going to we're going to allow for that one since only 17 players received votes here. Pacers fans don't fuck around. I respect it. No Lavoie yeah. Allens, Solomon Hills. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Tyler Hansborough was snubbed. He wasn't. I'm just letting everybody know he wasn't. I mean, he he was a very Indiana player, though. Just that that hard-nosed mentality. Not a, If you ever watched him in college, I don't think you ever would have predicted that he became like this enforcer goon in the NBA. That's right. basically what he was. He was incredible in college. Do you have anything else to add on this podcast, or should we put a bow on it? We should put a bow on it. Uh... Just want to remind everyone once more, though, just rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever else we're getting your podcast. That's the best way to, to help us out. And if this is your first time listening and you enjoyed it, we promise we will continue improving and putting out content during this NBA hiatus and including when it comes back. We have some great other alternative content in store for you as well, in addition to also continuing on with these decade rankings. We'll, when we come back, we'll be up to the, the Los Angeles Clippers. It's something about getting to the first LA team that makes me feel like we're hitting a milestone because you can see the halfway point coming. So they will be next. We look forward to, to talking to you then. And until next time, I leave everyone with a shout out to the one, the only, the man, myth, legend, Dante Jones. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Metric's second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.